This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. In September 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed into law legislation establishing the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, as the 11th Department of the Federal Government. At the time, President Johnson said, quote, We must make sure that every family in America lives in a home of dignity, in a neighborhood of pride, a community of opportunity, and a city of promise and hope, unquote. Good housing and strong communities are not only a source of hope, but a driving force of our economy. So for the last 50 years, HUD's mission has focused on issues of affordable housing, responsible home ownership, tackling homelessness, and contributing to economic development. In order for HUD to achieve these program goals, its operations must be efficient, effective, and serve customer needs. What are the key strategic priorities for HUD? How is HUD positioning itself as a Department of Opportunity? And what is HUD doing to improve its operational performance? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Nani Coloretti, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Nani, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you, Michael. So this year uh, marks the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Would you provide us a brief overview of the history, mission, and continued evolution of the department? Sure, sure. So Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, so we'll refer to it, our mission is to create strong and sustainable, inclusive communities and quality, affordable homes for all. And we do that in a number of ways. Um, But we were created in September 1965. So as you know, it's the 50th anniversary this September. It starts there. And it was really kind of in the midst of a lot of unrest happening in cities across the country. And so uh, what the Housing and Urban Development Act did was it consolidated some already existing organizations like the Federal Housing Administration and the Public Housing Administration. And then it also added new authorities to the agency. So it sort of created this new, out of all of those things, kind of created a new organization. And then over time, additional, particularly in the 60s and the 70s, although laws continued to pass in the 80s that were sort of ways of adding more authority or asking HUD to do additional things. So in 1968, the Fair Housing Act passed, Mm -hmm. and that became a key part of what we do even today, and that prohibits housing discrimination based on factors like race, religion, gender, disability and family status. And so we have uh, enforcement capabilities there that we work with the Department of Justice on that. So it's not just that we're doing programs for folks, but we're also ensuring fair housing. Uh, And then in the 70s, the Community Development Block Grant Program passed, and that you may be familiar with. We call it CDBG. And I'll talk about it a little bit more later. But that grants funding to state and local governments for community development, rehabilitation of affordable housing, really community-driven answers to some of the problems we're trying to solve. And then in 1987, 
then another act passed. It was the McKinney Act, and you may have heard of it. It gives funding to localities to combat homelessness. And so we are still implementing that program today, and I'm, I'm leaving out a whole bunch of other sort of different um, programs that were passed basically by Congress over time to try to address homelessness, housing, and community needs, both in urban settings and rural settings mm-hmm. as well. So we've, in the last 20 years alone, we've provided uh, public housing and rental assistance to over 35 million people. Yeah. So it's a great thing to be celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. And we were also 10 years right exactly out from Hurricane Katrina. And um, Hurricane Katrina really marked um, a a point in time at which HUD was also called upon for uh, disaster recovery. And we've done some, a lot of work in that, actually. And even in Hurricane Sandy got appropriations to do recovery and resilience. So not just uh, working with communities after a disaster has happened, like a big hurricane, but also working with communities to build more resiliency into the community itself. So that if and when another hurricane comes or another disaster, people are more prepared in their housing. So we've been sort of covering a lot of that. And, of course, it's a a long time ago in our history. But when we first got here in the Obama administration, administration, Secretary Sean Donovan uh, played a big role in the market during the Great Recession. HUD um, insures home loans. And we've done so for quite some time. And so um, Secretary Donovan really worked on providing better access to credit at a time when, you know, no one was lending. The scale and scope of that portfolio and mission is is quite huge and quite important. But um, with such a critical mission, I'd like to get a sense of the operational footprint of HUD. Um, how is it organized? And you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but the size of the budget, maybe the number of uh, FTEs and the geographical footprint of HUD. Um, so it's about $46 billion budget. Over 85% of our budget actually is to renew rental assistance or other kinds of assistance for housing but to about 5.5 million Americans. So just to give you a scope of like where most of our program dollars are going. Um, but we've got about 8,000 folks, two-thirds of them that work for HUD. Mm-hmm. Two-thirds of our employees are outside of the D.C. area. So we do have, yeah, a national footprint, a third are, of course, here in the D.C. area. And we're really, you know, we're really on the ground in uh, over 50, you know, regional sort of field offices. We've got 10 regional offices and over 50 field offices. So that's kind of the operational footprint. And we're we're divided by program. So um, I think I mentioned before how we came about. The Federal Housing Administration remains sort of our largest program in HUD and the largest by FTE also. And it is, you know, ensuring access to credit, ensuring loans. Public and Indian housing uh, sort of funds what people think of as traditional public housing, but it also has our largest portion of our budget, our appropriated budget, um, because it is running uh, what we call housing choice vouchers. So vouchers for people to be mobile um, and have subsidized housing in other places, you know, so they can choose where they want to live in their community. Community planning and development is another programmatic area we're organized into, and that runs the CDBG program I mentioned earlier, but also a whole bunch of other uh, grant programs to communities to sort of fund community-driven solutions to improve housing homelessness, expand economic opportunities uh, for low- and moderate-income people. It's really targeted to low- and moderate-income people. And there's also a staff in Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity that implements the Fair Housing 
Housing Act, and also is in our field uh, footprint, helping communities understand how to follow the Fair Housing Act so that they can be sure that they're affirmatively furthering fair housing. Uh, We have a number of other staffs that are smaller than those that I mentioned, and they do a whole range of things. We have a a staff specializing in lead hazard control in healthy homes. Uh, We have a really active and fantastic policy development and research staff, and they make sure that we continue to use evidence Mm -hmm. in our policymaking or programming. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. And we have a whole bunch of administrative folks helping communities uh, navigate housing issues and also um, helping HUD run better. So from understanding uh, HUD's mission and the size of its operational uh, capacity, I'd like to explore your leadership role in the department. What are your specific responsibilities as deputy secretary and what areas are under your purview? Sure. So deputy secretary is such an interesting job because you're, you know, you're the number two. So Technically, your main job is to be ready to, you know, fill in for the secretary if needed. Um, but the way that we have kind of divided the portfolio is that I'm really helping achieve our mission by focusing on building a stronger HUD and focusing on effective operations and also cross-cutting policy and program issues. So pretty much the entire agency reports up to the secretary through me. And so when there are cross-cutting issues or issues that involve more than one program or policy area, I get called in to help navigate that, but I'm also spending a lot of time focusing on um, structuring the agency to better fulfill its mission. And so what are the top, say, I don't know, three challenges that you face in that capacity, and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So um, the top two challenges, and then there's a third one that I'll talk about, really are the challenge of, I think, the federal uh, government right now. And it's how do you sustain great work and get results while uh, you are just going to continue to work in a constrained budget picture, right? So we know that the budget won't get better in the near future or maybe even in the long run. What that means is we're going to continue to ask people to do more with less, right? And then the third challenge, uh, which is sort of might be related to the first two, is at HUD, we have had persistent low morale for for many years. We're the lowest ranked uh, medium-sized agency on the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, um, the EVS. So we've been working to address all of these um, in a couple of ways. When I first got to HUD back in December of last year, we spent a few months doing something we're calling the deep dive, and I'll talk about that more later. It's a really top-to-bottom operational review. From that effort, really talking to stakeholders and talking to staff, listening to them, hearing what they think is working well and not well, what's not working well, there are three sort of main areas that I'm focusing on that will build a stronger HUD. One is promoting leadership, increasing collaboration at the same time, increasing accountability to ourselves, to our stakeholders, and to each other, and um, focusing on customer service. And then also improving resource management, which I think is the trick to sort of try to do more with less. We've put together a set of priorities that I can sort of talk about in further detail when we talk about the deep dive. We also did a – the secretary and I did a full court press on the employee viewpoint survey, not to improve the score, but actually just to improve the participation. One of the things we noticed was that only half – about half the agency was taking the survey. And so this is a survey that's given every year to every federal employee in every agency. So when you've got a response rate at 51%, it's hard to tell if the results are real or if they're, you know, based on uh, people who tend to fill out the survey. Are are happy people filling out the survey? Unhappy people is really (laughs) hard to tell, right? So we set this goal this year of increasing that to 75% participation rate, which is just a huge leap. 
And, you know, we weren't sure we we would do it, but the point was to try to explain to people why we were asking them to fill out the survey. And part of it is, you know, we've been seeing these results and we want to work on them. We want to fix them. But we actually need more participation to understand, try to get in underneath these numbers and understand what's driving them. And so we got up to almost 74 percent participation. And so that was the first part of that that was really surprising. The second thing that was surprising about that was what ended up happening. We got our preliminary results back and we're still analyzing them, but we increased on almost every question. So there are 71 questions and we increased on 69 of them. The average increase is nearly five percentage points. So in a regular year, if you go up about two percentage points on any one of these questions, that's considered, you know, movement, you know, because it's a big, you know, survey, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got thousands and thousands of people taking some big N. But so to go up by that much overall was really, really fascinating. And there are three questions that contribute to overall employee satisfaction. Those went up by seven and a half percent. So we asked for more response, but we also but we also got higher rating this year. So that's that's interesting. Now let me just say there's a lot more work to be done because we're talking about increasing on a very low base. <laughs> so I was looking at uh, we do actually either meet or exceed the federal average on many of the questions, but on many of them they're still way below, okay. even though we went up. So it's hard to say. You know, um, the Partnership for Public Service every year does a um, a ranking mm-hmm. of of where you fall compared to others. And it's hard to know if, if we'll go up on that at all. Okay. It depends on you know, where everybody else is. What are the key strategic priorities for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development? We will ask Nani Coloretti, HUD's Deputy Secretary, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nani Coloretti, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, Secretary Castro referred to HUD as the Department of Opportunity because of the unique impact it has on people's lives. What are your key strategic priorities in the agency's performance goals? Can you let us a little, tell us a little bit about those? So Department of Opportunity, just to kind of give you a little bit of, of, of yeah, context, is really using housing as an opportunity or as a platform. And so when Secretary Castro got to HUD, and he got there before me, he got there about a, year, a little over a year ago, he distilled uh, their work down into six goals, which I'll tell you about right now. Mm-hmm. And then I'll also tell you about our agency priority goals, because those are the ones we track on performance.gov. So that will kind of give you a sense of what we're looking at and monitoring every quarter. But the six goals are really some of the things I've been talking about so far, helping families and individuals secure quality housing by promoting responsible home ownership and expanding affordable rental markets. So home ownership and rental. 
Another goal is to end veterans and chronic homelessness, and we've also added ending family homelessness. So we have targets and years by which we'll end those. That's a very lofty goal. A third goal is to level the playing field for all Americans from all walks of life by fighting housing discrimination. I mentioned the Fair Housing Act to you before. That's some of our key tools for that. Uh, Another goal is to strengthen rural, tribal, and urban communities through place-based initiatives, which I can talk about a little bit more later. A fifth goal is to address climate change by preparing communities for extreme weather and other disasters and strengthening their economic and environmental resilience. So we have a whole resiliency set of work that we're doing. And then the sixth goal, which is my favorite goal, Mm -hmm. is to build a stronger HUD, (laughs) (laughs) which I mentioned before, um, by improving leadership, accountability, and transparency and focusing on better resource management. Renters in America have serious difficulty finding affordable housing. Uh, could we dive into what what are some of the problems that contribute to the situation and what is being done to ensure sustainable investment in affordable rental housing? We're seeing a lot of marketplaces, markets, um, or a lot of urban markets in particular, yeah. uh, just have skyrocketing rent. Um, it's an economic problem. There's not enough supply and too much demand. Right. So we publish a survey. We work with folks to look at uh, housing prices and we're Basically, we continue to be in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. We estimate that almost 8 million families are spending more than half their income on rent, or they live in substandard rental housing, or both. They're both spending more than half their income on rent, and it's not such a great unit. So we are taking a lot of steps to sort of support and expand our affordable rental market. Now, these are a number of things that we're doing to kind of see if these will turn the curve. On, on, on this problem. So we are standing up something called the National Housing Trust Fund. So this is uh, work in partnership with OMB, the Treasury, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is going to be the source of this funding. And so it's set to generate hundreds of millions of dollars, and that's funding that is going to be targeted or aimed at developing rental housing for low-income families. It's targeted for low-income families. So we recently published an interim rule in the Federal Register on this, and we're setting up our systems to be able to implement, and we hope to start giving money out and putting allocations out there next summer. Mm-hmm. So that's really great news. It's going to be new funding on the uh, on the market for that. We're also streamlining some of our handbooks and our notebooks because we we insure. Um, I think I mentioned to you we insure housing loans, home loans. We also insure multifamily development loans. Okay. So we're streamlining some of our rules around that to make it easier to finance a loan that would help you, you know, build affordable housing, affordable rental units. We're streamlining the way we do business in our multifamily work. So, um, you know, this is really answering the question of how do you do more with less? If we have a backlog of people wanting to get an insured loan for a multifamily unit, how can we move those applications faster? So we've done a massive project over the last year and a half to basically uh, eliminate paper, to make the process make sense. We did a whole bunch of process improvements to do that and really change how we do our work around that. That is actually already yielding results where an application took maybe 60 or 90 days. It's taking two weeks. So it's, it's, it's greatly speeding up the ability. And, we're, and we are also noticing that we are able to handle increased volume. 
okay. for that, right? For if there's if more loans coming, we're able to handle it. We also have a funding stream that uh, we've been focusing on a lot this year. We'd asked for um, over a billion dollars in something called the Home. It's a Home Investment Partnership Program. It is basically formula grants to states and localities that work in partnership, often with local nonprofit groups, to fund building, buying, and or rehabilitating affordable housing units for rent or home ownership. You choose, and they can also def- um, provide direct rental assistance to uh, low-income people. But what we know about that grant program is that it is uh, used often for gap funding in partnership with other tax credits and other kinds of financing to build more rental units. So it's really critically important, even though it's just a billion dollars, it's really critically important to getting these buildings up. Uh, built. There are buildings around D.C. that have, have used that funding stream and, and very successfully. So for fiscal year 16, mm-hmm. fiscal year that starts October 1, we had a proposal and um, the Senate bill cut that by 93 percent. So they really uh, they really took a hammer to it. And, the, and it's, it's such a big cut that certain uh, communities won't be able to use the grant because you need a certain um, amount of money just to get a, get a building, a unit or building you know, financed. And so that's that's one area we're keeping an eye on in the hopes that um, some of that money will come back and come back for localities. So just switching gears from the rental or affordable housing in general, whether it's, you know, to the idea of exploring housing as a platform, stable housing as a platform to help folks get either different social benefits or um, health care benefits or a range of social services. Would you elaborate on some of the department's efforts to promote health and housing stability in the vulnerable populations. And I'd really like to talk about the innovative approaches you're taking. I I believe Upward Mobility Project might fit into that. Could you tell us a little bit about what's going on in this area? Sure, sure. So the Upward Mobility Project is a new initiative that we proposed and also in the FY 2016 budget. And it was, it's a strategy to partner the Department of Health and Human Services to allow state and local governments to blend funding across four different programs. And um, so we would give them this flexibility in these different funding streams, and they would actually, in, in exchange, give us more accountability on achieving specific goals, such as expanding in employment and job training opportunities or improving children's educational outcomes. So we think this is a great way to sort of um, trade flexibility for accountability and, and really drive towards better outcomes in these programs, the programs that are in uh, Health and Human Services and at HUD. Um, right now, uh, the, that proposal didn't make it through our markup of our appropriations bill, mm-hmm. um, but it is still a really great idea and hopefully we'll um, repropose it. It's really a way where you're saying we're not asking you for more money, but what we're asking for is for us to use the money on what works um, and have and hold uh, communities accountable for for that, for that funding stream. So we'll see if we can uh, get somebody to uh, be interested in that idea. But there's a lot of other ways to use housing as a platform to improve outcomes. So our Office of Healthy Homes announced that it's going to provide about $102 million to 32 local and state agencies. And this is going to, we're going to work with these agencies and our partners to uh, eliminate lead-based paint mm-hmm. and other household hazards like mold and carbon dioxide. And this is going to uh, improve outcomes for 6,000 households. And, you know, there's a big link between these kinds of things that are in, particularly older housing, and the time that parents and students and young people spend waiting for a doctor or having an illness that's brought on by their indoor air quality or by some of these hazards. So so that's a direct 
a program that we have to improve health. But we also work throughout partnerships, the federal, state, local levels. In particular, we're working uh, also with Health and Human Services in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is sometimes called CMS, to better align housing mm-hmm. with healthcare services that can be paid for by Medicaid. And so we know that when we're doing, particularly for supportive housing, um, once you house someone, you can use that as a platform to kind of help bring comprehensive health services to wrap around folks to kind of make sure that they can actually stay healthy and stay in permanent housing, supportive housing. So that's an intervention that um, has been proven to work out in places like San Francisco um, in particular, but um, we're working with CMS to see if we can do this in more places. And then we also have partnered with Department of Justice, and we'll be giving more than $9 million in partnership with DOJ to provide housing assistance and supportive services to low-income women living with HIV-AIDS. Um, and so th- these are women who are victims of sexual assault or domestic violence, dating violence, stalking. So this actually directly, it is, you know, as you can, as you can see, we're sort of talking about housing, but also about services to improve um, people who particularly are, are um, survivors of domestic violence so that they don't have to fall into a cycle of homelessness because of that. Well, you pick up on homelessness, and I want to talk about um, some of the success around ending, ending chronic homelessness, but more particularly, can you give us those stats? Oh, sure. And, and also, just in general, what is the department doing in this area around ending chronic homelessness in families, youth, and children? What are some of the key challenges you're facing? Oh, there's so many challenges. I mean, we, uh, so this is, we've been working on this for about five years. As President Obama sort of launched, uh, introduced opening doors, and that's really a comprehensive strategy for ending. We started with veterans homelessness, but it involves 19 different federal agencies, including obviously HUD and the Veterans Administration, VA, and Department of Labor and others. But We've been able to reduce uh, veterans' homelessness by 33% over that time. And we've also uh, managed to reduce chronic homelessness by 21%. So those are really fantastic numbers. We did it in a number of ways. One of the ways to really work on something big like this, which which is really everyone should own this this issue, is we did a mayor's challenge with different mayors. And so earlier this year, New Orleans Mm -hmm. became the first major city to end veterans' homelessness. Yeah, New Orleans. So they met the mayor's challenge, and, and they you know they did it in a number of ways, but really through their own sort of partnership on the ground. And then we had a kind of companion partnership here at the federal level. So part of the story about how this can happen really has to do with using data to drive results. So we track how well we're doing towards these goals in what we call HUDSTAT, which is just a quarterly review of the numbers. But we do our HUDSTAT. We invite the Veterans Administration to come to ours is one that we hold uh, at HUD. And we also have the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness comes. And we talk about not just where the number is, you know, how are we doing on our goals and how many, what's the point in time count showing in terms of of number of homelessness, but to really ask about what's happening underneath this number. And so in the case of veterans homelessness, sometimes what we would notice is that there'd be a backlog at the VA Mm -hmm. medical center to like get 
treatment and get some of the certifications that you need to sort of enter the HUD VA program. So that's good information. And it's also a way to sort of hold ourselves accountable. Like, what can we do to help with that? Is there anything we can do? So the other thing about that goal of ending homelessness is we actually also went to the White House and did um, reviews of the data with them. And that would be where, like, all the 19 agencies would come. And those were fascinating conversations because you really get to see the whole system. And, of course, like any system, you know, there are silos, there are difficulties in achieving your outcomes. And they often have to do with something really mundane, like somebody is newly becoming a veteran and their file didn't make it from DOD to VA seamlessly. So therefore, they didn't qualify for the VA voucher and they couldn't, you know, so there's there's sort of all of these sort of details that are might be might seem mundane or boring really exciting for me because I'm an operational person right <laughs> to figure out how what can we do to you know push this number down so that's what we've uh, we've been doing and we are taking that same approach with chronic and family homelessness so really setting the target and starting to get people around the table and work with us to find ways to have and particularly partner with localities to have them help us find some of the solutions because there are different strategies that work in different places. Well, in this segment, you know, I'm trying to sort of uh, introduce folks to the portfolio that you outline, the priorities that you have. And the next thing you, you had mentioned was that um, HUD's role in building resilient communities. I'd like to touch on some of the programs you have available there. And what are you doing in this area? Sure, sure. So this is a really um, neat area that we're working on. We're sort of helping communities rebuild in the aftermath of natural disasters. Uh, and as we know, there is uh, climate changes upon us, and that tends to increase the number of natural disasters that we're facing. So earlier this summer, HUD and the Rockefeller Foundation announced that 40 states and local communities can compete or they're going to compete in the second and last phase of something we're calling the National Disaster Resilience Competition. This competition is going to provide nearly $1 billion to support solutions that prepare communities that have been recent victims of natural disasters for future storms, preparing communities for future storms and other extreme events. So an example would be um, a community that suffered from a lot of flooding may offer buyouts to certain property owners in the most impacted areas and also restore a wetland to limit future flooding and at the same time provide a nature preserve or recreation area. And we've actually seen ideas like this where a lot of what's happened in communities that are near water is that they've there's been infill, um, so there's nowhere for the water to go. So you sort of take that land back, and then when it's dry, it's actually a park. <laughs> so these are the kinds of ideas to sort of, that's what we mean by resilient communities. And so the completion of this phase kind of builds on um, the success of a partnership we also had with Rockefeller, which was called the Rebuild by Design competition, which helped rebuild communities in New York and New Jersey uh, following Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, so we had a big competition there and awarded funding to different communities who, mostly to communities who got together, not just one city or one part of, of one beach, but basically a whole community approach um, because the infrastructure uh, is interconnected. As we know and as we've seen in some of these really extreme events, you, you you know, one thing floods and the sewage system goes out and the transportation system gets flooded and there's a whole, yeah, you know, sort of interconnectedness, right, yeah. to all of us. And, and particularly when you're involving water, mm-hmm. which moves. So um, it really – and so we're learning a lot um, from that and um, – uh, 
when you're doing when you do competitions like this, you're basically asking communities to get together and apply. So even if they aren't able to get the funding, they actually have their community plan drawn out. So we've been sort of uh, targeting other communities in addition um, with uh, disaster recovery and resiliency funding. We've been working with Detroit, for example, mm-hmm. providing the city with support as it rebuilds from flooding from last summer that we didn't really hear much about, but inflicted damage on 70,000 households and businesses. So there's there's flooding happening in small communities all over the country. Um, Last week was the 10th anniversary of of Hurricane Katrina, and Secretary Castro went to New Orleans to help commemorate that. And we were able to kind of rack up some of the things we had done there as well, Mm -hmm. um, because we were on the ground there after that hurricane swept through. And we housed about 200,000 families through HUD recovery funds and invested $585 million towards redeveloping sites in New Orleans. So we're really kind of committed to to being there when there's a flood, but not just right after to rebuild, but also to bring some of these best practices and resiliency so that if there's another disaster, um, as I mentioned with you know this, this notion of the wetlands or somewhere for the water to go, um, the community is better protected that way. So technology has transformed the way we live, learn, and work, but not everyone, as uh, I was reading Secretary uh, Castro's point, has uh, been able to develop or participate in these developments. And I want to talk about a recent program. I think it's recent that yeah. you folks are doing, and it's the HUD's Connect Home program. What, how does that seek to address this situation? Yeah, so this is really addressing the, this particular problem that even though um, for you and I, it seems like, you know, everybody's got Wi-Fi, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's a necessity, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a high-speed internet a global economy. 90% of college applications are submitted online and more than 80% of job openings with Fortune 500 companies are posted online and on the web and federal jobs are posted online and on the web too. So um, Connect Home is a new pilot initiative that's going to accelerate broadband adoption by children and families living in HUD-assisted public housing in 28 communities uh, across the nation. So it's basically addressing what we have been calling for a long time the digital divide. This is really trying to also address the cost with affording high-speed service and electronic devices and also training in digital literacy skills. So we have commitments from organizations like Google Fiber, Sprint, Best Buy, PBS, the American Library Association, and in August, the White House and HUD hosted the National Connect Home Summit, and stakeholders from across the nation sort of defined strategies for measuring the success of this pilot uh, and outlined plans for implementing the program. And so in the coming months, leaders from the communities, each community that is participating will host their own summits, start to develop local solutions that will basically make the biggest impact for HUD's residents. What is HUD doing to enhance its operational performance? We will ask Nani Coloretti, its deputy secretary, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center reports Six Trends Driving Change in Government offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. 
I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nani Coloretti, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So, Nani, in the the previous segment, we were kind of talking about the opportunity agenda, uh, all the programs that HUD has that's uh, helping customers and uh, our citizens. And I'd like to turn inwards to, uh, to HUD and how you're helping HUD operationally. And I believe when you first started, right out of the gate, you did a operational management review, what you called earlier the deep dives. Yeah. Would you tell us more about this effort? What were some of the key weaknesses and strengths identified from this effort? And how have you responded? Yeah, sure. So um, this was basically a way to sort of um, jump right in mm-hmm. to HUD and understand, uh, you know, how is it snapping together and are things working for our employees, for our stakeholders, for the people that we serve. And in most instances, people did not feel like it was easy to get things done. Mm-hmm. And and if you think about it, it is hard to uh, to get a policy or program implemented or just an operation implemented in a government setting. There are a lot of rules um, that are not made by you mm-hmm. as the agency, right? So Uh, We have a bunch of personnel rules that are sort of in law implemented by the Office of Personnel Management. We have to answer to those. We have – it's hard to buy things, Mm. right? Procurement rules are governed by federal acquisition regulations um, and uh, sort of the General Services Administration, GSA, and the Office of Management and Budget and – quite frankly, the Department of Defense, who has most of the procurement in the mix, um, really kind of drive those rules. Um, so you you basically find yourself when you're, uh, let's just say you're a first-line federal manager, you find yourself not spending time on the mission uh, and the program that you want to do, but actually on how am I going to hire someone or how am I going to purchase something or can I get my work done, can I implement things, um, what IT solutions do I have, mm-hmm. and so forth. And that was my theory, but but I basically did a, a massive listening tour and a conversation with as many people as I could, uh, both inside and outside of HUD. Uh, you know, we did, uh, so for example, we did a town hall with every region um, and with all of HUD, too, and, and headquarters, and really kind of distilled some of these operational challenges into a few areas that I mentioned earlier, which are really sort of in leadership and leadership engagement and collaboration, accountability and customer service and resource management. But there are the way that we have sort of arrayed what we're doing next. So, so the trick about this is we've done this deep dive. We've defined a few things I'll talk about in a second. But the trick is really that it's ongoing. So we've set forth a number of work streams or projects um, and uh, basically have created small teams around each project sure. and uh, working, you know, hand in hand with the career leadership of the agency and career managers and just career staff uh, because these are the folks that you know, many people have been at HUD for, you know, 20, 30 years and they know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. 
And so I am, you know, I am there for just another 18 months. And so really trying to partner with folks who um, are on the ground and know what's going on, but also trying to give lift to some of these ideas. So, for example, we have a big focus on uh, a leadership development and succession planning. Like many federal agencies, you know, the majority of our um, SESers are GS15s and 14s. These are the higher level managers uh, are eligible to retire in the next five years. Um, and so that leaves a big gap if you're not planning ahead for it. So we are uh, we have already established um, uh, what we call a candidate development program for SES. That is um, a, a year and a half program that's competitive to get into for HUDs managers, uh, the, their GS15s, uh, but start to kind of grow, home grow. Some of the people are be ready to take on some of these leadership roles if and when they um, are available. But also spending some time with the SES. I met with every single career SESer. Uh, there are it's a manageable number. Um, <laughs> there are eighty six of them. Okay. And I met with them each for 15 minutes because I really think that the agency is going to succeed um, if, you know, if, if the leadership can do it. And so I feel like supporting, understanding what's going on at that level and supporting that level of, of work is, is really going to be a, a, a key leverage point. So that's one uh, set of bo- uh, work that we're doing, which is really focusing on um, leadership. And we also are putting together – this came from the field – uh, required manager training on both management and leadership. And quite frankly, managers are asking for this too. And it, it, it reminds me that like one of the loneliest jobs is like a frontline or second line supervisor in the federal government where you're basically expected to deliver on all of the mission and also make sure that you understand labor law and how to buy stuff, you know, <laughs> and don't make any mistakes because you get into big trouble, right? And so, um, and so we're putting together classes that will help people sort of understand, you know, what the what the rules are and how to navigate and how to actually be a better coach um, for their staff as well. So that people will, um, we can create the kind of environment, the kind of conditions where people can really do their best work. Um, because while there are constraints, you can still do quite a lot of things in the federal government and you have great scope and scale. So there, that's sort of the leadership, engagement, collaboration. In addition to collaboration, we, we learned that there was this body of work that we're, we're, we've called sort of headquarters field collaboration. This is, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, um, about two-thirds of our staff are in the field. So that's a management challenge just because you're on all in the same place. But the, it's compounded by the fact that our uh, the way HUD is managed is through these silos. So you report up the chain to public and Indian housing or you report up the chain to the Federal Housing Administration. It makes it hard for um, the, f- the field offices and the regional offices. It can, it can be sometimes challenging to sort of get – up your chain to headquarters and get things done. It's a lot of this work is cross-silo. Much of it is because um, there's just so much overlap um, when you're really trying to solve hard problems like homelessness in communities, very cross-siloed. So uh, we have several working groups on working on improving our processes between headquarters and the field mm-hmm. and also improving our internal communication in our internal communications and then finding ways to embed the place-based work that we're doing. And I can talk about it a little bit later. Another thing that we're doing from the deep dive is really focusing on uh, support office 
service delivery. And what support offices, what I mean by that is the chief financial officer, the chief human capital officer, or HR as we call it, chief information officer, the chief procurement officer. We're basically doing a project in each of these areas. So in in information technology and IT, we're really pushing on enterprise IT because we're, you know, if we're really going to be one HUD, we should sort of find efficiencies and savings in that. In, um, in the hiring plan, we have this very onerous hiring plan where you create it, you send it to human capital, the Chico, you they send it to the CFO, um, and then it kicks back through probably two, three rounds of that before you can hire anyone. And so HUD normally does not start its fiscal year hiring until way, way, way later in the year, which seems like, oh, what's the big deal? But then what happens is, you know, they can never hire up the staff that they need because you start to, you know, lose time um, by having that kind of onerous process. So we're, we're focusing like a laser on processes such as, as those in all of the operational areas to try to improve. Uh, and then we also sort of change some of our governance um, structure to, to better do resource management. Mm-hmm. So we're doing quarterly management reviews. So in addition to the HUDSTAT mm-hmm. quarterly reviews, we're doing almost like a management suite of metrics mm-hmm. to figure out um, whether we're we're meeting our operational goals and also where we're um, – are we executing on our budget? Are we hiring the people we need to hire? on? So we're basically checking on that also every quarter. So another way you're actually realizing some efficiencies or planning to realize some efficiencies is pursuing shared services. And actually your old agency, I think, is uh, your old department is going to be taking over your core financial management system, as I understand it. Could you tell us a little bit more about the effort, what this entails, and how is it going to help uh, HUD's financial management and internal controls? Yeah. So, um, look, we, like many agencies, uh, had a couple of failed efforts at HUD um, to replace our financial, our core system. This is why this project is called New Core. <laughs> our core financial system um, is is outdated and, and, quite frankly, no longer supported. So that means when, when a system is no longer supported, it means that you, as the agency, have insourced it and you're supporting it yourself with feds, and it's, it's, not, it's not a good situation to be in. So um, we, are, we have already transitioned um, our, our back office hiring processes uh, to, um, to the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department has a shared service. There are several agencies out there that run a shared service environment. Treasury is one of them. The Bureau of Fiscal Service runs this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in addition to doing our human capital processing, uh, we are expecting to, in this coming fiscal year, uh, transition all of our financial processing to okay. Treasury. So they will, um, you know, we will no longer um, sort of uh, be processing our payments through the HUD system. We'll be processing them through Treasury system. It seems like a, a small thing, but it's actually a large huge change management project um, because it means everybody has to change the way they do their work. But what you get in place of that is a couple of things that really do help with the audit and internal controls. Um, when you work with a shared services provider, there are many benefits. One of them is that you know their financial management practices and process, you adopt those. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And Treasuries has been audited quite, quite a bit because not only are they a shared service provider, but Treasury also processes all the bills of the entire federal government. So they, they are the best practice in financial management. So um, 
so we will we are adopting their process and their checks and balances, which I think will help greatly with both internal controls and just general financial management and reconciliation of our money. So that'll that'll be a huge huge benefit. The other benefit to moving to shared services is um, you are you update with everybody. So there are a number of other agencies that are sort of residing on this system, this IT system. Um, when it is time for an upgrade, you're, you're sort of funding the upgrade together. Um, and so when things happen through the system, so the federal government went to a new travel um, service provider, um, and that's always really painful because for 10 years we were using one system, and now the entire federal government change is using management. exactly, and it's like change management across the whole federal government. But I know I happen to know that a Treasury, a BFS, they um, were able to upgrade everybody all at once instead of uh, having kind of fits and starts, and so that's that's really the benefit. I mean, there are down the road um, uh, savings. For doing shared services, but it, it isn't the only reason why you do it. You do it for process improvements, too. How is HUD using partnerships and collaboration to meet its mission? We will ask Nani Coloretti, its Deputy Secretary, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nani Coloretti, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Nani, despite recent advances in programs such as telework and alternative work schedules, HUD has historically operated a traditional definition of the workplace. Would you tell us more about how the department is uh, reducing the cost of lease space, utilities, travel, and other costs? What are you doing in this area to change the way people do work. Yeah, we're doing quite a lot, actually. So um, it's interesting. I actually found um, pretty great use of alternative work schedules and telework in HUD compared to Treasury, the agency I came from. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that was forged with, with in partnership with the union. And there are some jobs at HUD where you really can't um, telework because you're really there for the stakeholder that's walking in. It's very hard to actually, you know, not be there when they walk in. But but there are technical – there's a lot of technical work and other kinds of work that can be done with a telework arrangement. And so, um, you know, we have this, this uh, question on the EVS, which is whether supervisors support – Work-life programs, they call them work-life programs. That went up 4.6 percentage points year over year. Um, and we're basically in line with the government average on that um, on that score. But I happen to know that we, we do make great 
pretty great use of that across the agency. Um, but what that means is that we actually do need to get better uh, at figuring out how to use our lease space. I think I mentioned to you earlier uh, in the segment that we have been doing this complete transformation of our multifamily um, staff. What that means is that some offices... So what we did was actually move people, by the way. We made um, regional hubs for certain kinds of processing of the loans. That we found that to actually make the processing go faster. Yeah. So what that means is some offices have, you know, a ton of empty space because they were net losers of staff, and some offices are squished in. Mm -hmm. And then at headquarters itself, uh, where a third of our staff is, we have some folks in lease buildings, and then we have this big, huge, HUD, beautiful HUD building on, uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen it, on 7th Street Southwest. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's in the brutalist uh, style. Anyway, um, so we are actually, we negotiated with our union. We just signed uh, an updated a contract with our, main, our, our largest union, uh, American Federation of Government Employees. We're going to set a new standard utilization rate for space. That will greatly help us in um, doing some of the things that really the modern workplace needs. But if you think about it, if you are making great use of telework, it actually is a good idea to have more um, flexible workspaces. And you don't really need a whole big office with three windows if you're not going to you know, be there a day, a day or two a week. So so we're working on that uh, with urgency uh, and in partnership with uh, GSA, the General Services Administration. That's a nice transition because I, I, I talk to many of my guests about partnerships and collaboration, how they're using it to meet mission and outcomes. Um, what are you doing in this area? How are you leveraging uh, partnerships and collaboration? Yeah, so we're doing a lot in this area. So I'm so glad I can talk about this for a little bit. Um, we we partner with localities for almost all of our programs, mm-hmm. but there are several that um, the president uh, and uh, Secretary Donovan and now Secretary Castro have really um, used to kind of amplify our work here. So we started with something called Strong City, Strong Communities, SC2. So <laughs> sort of make it sound even shorter. And that's um, an initiative that Secretary Castro co-chairs with Cecilia Munoz of the Domestic Policy Council, really transforming how federal agencies partner with communities to identify local priorities and to meet them. And so this is the notion that um, many of these problems uh, that people are trying to solve are interrelated. And working with the federal government is hard and can be kind of a mystery. So what we do is we deploy teams, uh, interagency federal teams, into cities. They're usually led by a Fed team lead. And, and, and generally what we do is we, if, if you've won um, the designation to be an SC2 city, there's no money that comes with it, but it's a designation. And what you get for it is you get a Fed embedded in your mayor's office for a couple of years. And basically, they use this model where they listen to the community and do um, a needs assessment and then start to build out a plan to address the most pressing needs. And so there have have been teams in 14 pilot cities and eight active teams starting their second year in a number of cities. So it's it's a really cool... um, uh, sort of project, and it, but you know it's pretty small, right? So in order to scale it up, we have created something called the National Resource Network, or the NRN, and that is integrated technical assistance for all communities. So we're putting what we can on the web, and we have staff uh, deployed to help up to eighty more communities on um, on this. Um, 
uh, model. And you think about it like um, a 311 for cities where city managers can pose discrete policy questions to federal and public management experts through this NRN. So it's pretty cool. So this is really a one-stop shop for all federal-based TA. And then there's a second uh, initiative that uh, we've been working on very uh, with rigor, and it's called Promise Zones. And Promise Zones are for high-poverty communities. Um, so they have to be uh, over 32 percent um, uh, or higher uh, low income. And federal, it's the same thing where federal government is partnering with local leaders to increase economic activity and improve outcomes. So Promise Zones is also greatly leveraging private investment. Um, uh, so from the, the foundation community, there's, there's um, several things they're targeting, reducing violent crime, enhancing public health, um, and other priorities that are um, uh, identified by the community. Again, you get a designation, so there's no money mm-hmm. um, that's attached to it. You basically come in and say, I want to be a promise zone. Sure. So the interesting thing is I went into um, a community that was go- going to be receiving one of these, and what they said was a lot of times when they come together to apply for a federal grant, it's sort of... It can be more difficult because there's money at stake. This time, since there wasn't any money on stake, everybody came to the table. Oh. Yeah. Isn't that funny? <laughs> it is funny. It's counterintuitive. <laughs> right. But but with no um, – there was no kind of jockeying for who's going to manage the grant and who gets the grant and all that stuff. And that's actually fantastic. And so um, we're working with HUD and the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture. So there's some rural and some uh, urban communities that are going to be designated and then – they basically get um, also staffing, you know, staffing to help navigate the federal uh, system and to help do the kind of really difficult sort of community-based planning efforts that lead to better collaboration. And quite frankly, eventually it does lead to, it makes your application stronger if you're applying for a justice grant or an education grant or even HUD grant. Your community will have done a lot of legwork already if you're getting help um, from a promise zone or from an SE2 to kind of leverage that kind of funding. So, Nani, um, what advice would you give someone who may be thinking about a career in public service? Well, I mean, I, of course, I'm biased. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, you know, I think there is no uh, higher calling. The The beauty of being in public service is having a direct link to making people's lives better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the mission uh, can really uh, inspire and encourage you to do um, a lot of hard work because the trade-off is... Um, uh, it can be very difficult. So you have to be willing to uh, persevere and to uh, sort of be a realistic optimist and look for opportunities. And, and just to be curious, because when, you, when you're the federal government, I mean, it is, um, and quite frankly, you know, public service can be at any level. You are you're sort of entrusted with a lot of um, sort of responsibility, because you need to you need to be of the highest ethical standards, but you also are being asked to navigate and, and get something done in tricky, sort of hard-to-follow situation. And what I mean by that is just all of the rules and all of the bureaucracy. You have to make, basically not be worried about that um, because I have seen really great things happen when, um, when you can navigate that. So I would just say perseverance, and if you really... Uh, believe in the mission, then you should come work for the government. Well, thank you for being here with me again today. It was great to have you back. Uh, I understand your schedule is very busy, so fitting us in was very helpful. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Nani Coloretti, Deputy Secretary, 
the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the key strategic priorities for DHS? How is the DHS Unity of Effort initiative going? What is DHS doing to improve its operational performance? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Alejandro Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.